Welcome to the Everlasting Education Podcast, the best of education through a gentle contempt of education. Hello, folks. I'm Scott Postman, joined by Joffrey Swate, and we are your hosts today for uh, chapter, what are we in, seven of Norms and Nobility. Before we get into the, the meat of our topic, I have a suggestion for this podcast, because really, I mean, our conversations before we start recording are a lot of fun, and um, uh, uh, we, we, we get pretty serious and pretty deep, but then it always ends in, in some ridiculous laughter. How about the ever laughing podcast the ever laughing podcast <laughs> oh man we, uh, if, if we recorded we could have all these outtakes and all that it would be an editing nightmare i just want the the listeners to know that they're missing so much <laughs> I, I, well maybe maybe we can get cooper to do that we could you know and sometimes yeah i think there's some great content that comes <laughs> that comes out of there they, they they may not take us quite as serious after uh you right know, they exactly. listen to a couple of those well, in this particular chapter, uh, Hicks has a particular goal, right? So it's it's a very specific goal in terms of the way classical education is uh, necessary for a democratic kind of society. Right. The title of, of the chapter is The Ennobling of the Masses. The demos, as Plato mm-hmm. would call them, or the hoi ploy, right? Oh, I, lo- uh, <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> My mom used to actually say hoi ploy to refer to the fickle mob, <laughs> <laughs> which was just talking about the people out there. She'd refer to the hoi ploy. So I was an eight-year-old who like would talk about the hoi ploy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably right out, you know, publicly. Oh, right. People are all offended. Well, I, I think one of the things that, that Hicks is trying to do here, um, we certainly respect and appreciate um, his goal for this chapter. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Kepler, you know, we have a little bit different uh, a goal, you know, and, and I should say Kepler as it represents classical Christian education, right. right? So as Christians, we are assuming a particular kind of norm that's informed by our Christian heritage and our, and the gospel and, you know, our, our Christianity. And, and so one of the uh, things that we want to kind of extrapolate, we want to pull out of this, is the way that what uh, Hicks is talking about will in fact provide for a good citizenry, but that's not really even the goal of education in our opinion, right? It goes deeper than just the state. Um, it, it goes into humanity. And of course that is good for the state, but we, right. but we have a little bit different approach to that. Yeah. I mean, we may be splitting hairs here, but you know, part of Hicks agenda is to talk to the state and to tell the state, listen, if you have a certain sort of education, you'll have better citizens. Yeah. Classical Christian education is better for the state. We're more of the mindset of, oh, the state needn't even worry about this. We Christians will educate classically and well. And eventually the state will be blessed by that. And and I think what, what you're talking about actually sort of, it, it, it assumes that, you know, just by virtue of Christians being what they ought to be in Christ mm-hmm. will be attractive to the state in a certain kind of way, in the way the scripture says that when a man lives righteously, he's at peace, right. even with his enemies, right? Or like Jesus, we will simply bring the sword, right? right? Yeah. But, but, you know, is if we can, if Christians can be, truly excellent enough and enough of a community enough of a capital c church in this country uh, then the state will have to reckon with us and recognize either that we will enormously bless them or be a millstone around their necks yes, absolutely. And, and, and you know it's <laughs> it would make sense for a a demonic state 
uh, satanic state uh, to decide that we were a millstone. But, you know, I, I'm afraid that at this point, uh, Christians in this country are largely, um, well, dissolved, dilute. <laughs> we we have been absorbed yes. in, into the culture rather than standing you know, and, and creating culture. Right. right. And that's on us. It's not on the state, right? right. We right. shouldn't, you know, okay. Well, we have uh, the charge of Christ. We have the great commission. Uh, and so part of this making disciples is to raise our own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that will change this country. Well, it sounds like you're having a little bit of a gentle contempt for education. <laughs> here. <laughs> I'm right on message. You are. Well, and, and this is one of the things I appreciate about our Kepler community is the fact that parents who are obviously, you know, leveraging the technology and the teachers that, that Kepler platform provides mm-hmm. um, because they have that goal in mind, you know, that, that they're, they're thinking about it, maybe not even consciously, but, you know, and maybe something in this podcast may spark a little thought right there. yeah absolutely and you know one thing as as we go through this episode that i'd like to encourage listening families uh, uh to do is is to not have a retreatist mentality yeah i know that's quite easy to do and, and it's and it's easy for me uh but what I, I i don't mean by that you know go down to city hall and get involved right away maybe that is how it expresses mm-hmm. itself um uh, but but rather what i mean is uh Don't try to hide. Don't try to just survive. Raise your children to flourish and change the world, right? And so be bold and be bold with your children, but in a wise way, right? Don't just throw them into the government schools, but rather raise them to be strong so that maybe one day government schools won't exist. What you're saying, I I think sometimes about the idea of the two ditches that Christians often fall into. And the one ditch is the huddle and cuddle mentality, the retreatist mentality. (laughs) I'll be using that from now on, by the way. (laughs) And and then the other side of it is almost Nietzschean where uh, Christians pick up this sort of culture warrior attitude that we're going to will into power the the Christian worldview. Um, And I think it's James Davison Hunter um, who uses the phrase, the faithful presence. And and whether or not everything in that phrase is the same thing that I mean by it. I, Mm -hmm. I love the phrase because it captures the idea that Christians doing the things we're supposed to do the way we're supposed to do them, you know, to the glory of God and joy and all that comes with raising children correctly will create. We're not standing over against culture. We're not retreating from it, but we create the kind of culture that the gospel is supposed to, you know, uh, flourish us with. And we do as scripture commands, right? We don't live in fear, but we, we live modestly and we live up to what we've attained. Yeah. And that will change the world. I like that. Well, let's let's start with a quote on the top of page 79. He says, the classical scholars, as opposed to uh, modern scholars, but the classical scholars recognize the material efficiency may make life possible, but it does not make society civilized or life worth living, nor is it alone capable of preserving the democratic ideals. And, and so this is where we see some of what... Um, what Hicks is aiming for Mm -hmm. and where we are not taking issue necessarily with Hicks, but where we see something about, uh, well, at least one part in that statement about a life worth living, right. In, in thinking of, uh, the civilization, the civilized world, the state, uh, will reap the benefits when we are, you know, educating in such a way that life is worth living. Right. Well, and we, you know, we, we've, uh, we've talked before, not only in this podcast, but it's actually been a core part of Kepler's message and even Kepler's marketing from the beginning, which is that, uh, there's a certain type of classical education. And we believe that, you know, we are in that, 
um, which provides an, an aristocratic education, right. the education that a lord or lady would have. Um, and we believe, democratically perhaps, that every Christian child should have that. Yes. Right. Uh, but you know, we're not we're not flattening, which is the, the impulse of a democracy and the democratic spirit. The spirit of the demos is is to flatten, lower, abase everything. Instead, what we're doing is we are we want to exalt each individual Christian. Yes. So instead of the race to the bottom, we're wanting to lift, give the opportunity for uplift to everyone. And that allows for excellence. It does allow for excellence. And, you know, one one of the images that always come to my mind and uh, when, when we think about the democratic impulse, and so think about this in terms of the way it does the same thing to education as it does to building homes, right? Track homes are a product of a democratic society. Yeah, McDonald's is a you know product of a democratic society. Everything is boiled down to its least common denominator so that everybody can have a little bit, right? Um, but we don't want to do that with education. You know, so we, we, we tend in a democratic society, and I think sometimes this is where you were talking about the way Christians tend to um, sort of sink into or, or you know, dissolve into the culture. We pick up that democratic impulse, um, maybe not even you know conscious of this, and we sort of push back against aristocratic or monarchical sort of thinking. And, and when I use those terms, I'm not necessarily speaking purely of the state, but the soul of a society that you know is formed by those kinds of you know impulses within a regime. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, Francis Farr Capon. Um uh, is, is known for a couple of, you know, theological culinary yeah. uh, works. And I'm, I'm trying to look up the, the title of the book. His, his most, his best known book is the supper of the lamb, uh, which is a wonderful book. I recommend uh, to listeners, by the way, it is, it's in the disguise of a, of a recipe book. So one lamb over seven days. So it's a week's worth of, of, of eating. There are all these theological excursions, the cosmic significance of the onion, what wine means. And it's really beautiful, but he has another collection of, uh, uh that is, I suppose a little more pedestrian, but really fun also about food. And that one of the passages that really stuck with me, uh, and I, and I, I don't have it, I don't, I'm not prepared to quote from it, unfortunately, but he, he actually talked for, and this is in the seventies, he went on for paragraphs about the decline of the Big Mac yeah, and what, you know, the McDonald's burger used to be like and how, when it started, it was a lot like a good burger, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and. And then he's describing in the late seventies or early eighties, how far it has fallen. And even in the description of the hamburger that he had to resign himself to from McDonald's, I thought, man, that'd be pretty nice. You know, like how much farther we have fallen, and, but that is inevitable, right? right? When you're trying to cater to the masses, um, then, then, then that's what will happen. Now there's an impulse in all of us. Perhaps when I said cater to the masses, uh, we have, you know, have a democratic mindset. We Americans have reacted viscerally against that. Uh, but you don't need to be part of the masses, no. right? You can have a mass of people who are all noble. That and and that's difficult for some to understand, um, especially you know anyone who has studied the different regimes and the way that that political regimes work, because as Plato pointed out in the Republic, that a, a city is nothing but the soul of man writ large, and so what we are seeing more is a soul of the people. And as Christians, because of the gospel, 
I believe that's what gives us the power to have a democratic you know, regime, so to speak, but with aristocratic souls. Right. right? Exactly. And, and, and that can't be done without the gospel. Right. Yeah. And we were, you know, we were afraid as we were preparing, we, we didn't want to have a, a strictly political uh, uh, episode and good job so far, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that we, that we were talking about was, you know, this, this soul of the people, um, you can have a free society within a monarchy. Yes. Right. right. And, you can have an enslaved society within a democracy. In fact, I would argue that uh, without the gospel, democracy leads to oppression. And and Hicks, even without getting into the gospel, Hicks actually goes there. Um, the fact that in, in a pure democracy, and, and I don't mean a pure democracy like without a republic like we have, but I mean in when we fully embrace the, um, uh, the democratic impulse for freedom being the highest virtue, then all we do is reduce ourselves to tyranny, right? right? It's the tyranny of every person who wants their freedom versus some sort of norm that we aspire to in a, an aristocratic, you know, uh, soul. Exactly. And, you know, education is, is moral, right? Yes. And so, you know, one of the things that Hicks observes really well um, is how this untrammeled uh, democratic spirit can uh, lead, it leads to a flattening of morality, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so on the bottom of page 84 and the top of page 85, I'll read a, a slightly longer section. He's been talking about tyrannies uh, in, a in a democracy. And he says, more tyrannies follow. Where democratic forms are deemed valuable regardless of the aims of education, disinterested analysis drives normative inquiry out of the classroom and severs the vital umbilicus between knowledge and responsibility. In the impartial eye of analysis, all aims appear of equal value. We know all about that. Right. Um, sorry, that we know all about that was Joffrey Swate's voice. <laughs> and no aim can lay claim on the learner's will. If it did, it would subvert the freedom that he values for its own sake, as well as prevent the detachment necessary for an objective analysis. So in the name of freedom, a reductionist method restricts the quest for knowledge in the democratic classroom, and the democratic youth methodically rejects the dogmas of normative learning in a manner recorded by Plato in Book 8 of the Republic. And then here are the words of Plato. If anyone says to him that some pleasures are the satisfactions of good and noble desire, and others of evil desires and that he ought to use and honor some and chastise and master others whenever this is repeated to him he shakes his head and says that they are all alike and that one is as good as another what you know this is such a great it's such a great passage not actually for the passage itself but because what c.s lewis says about this in the abolition of man mm. that when we reduce everyone to, you know, uh, or when a person reduces all of their impulses and their passions to being of equal value, we fail to recognize that these, uh, it, it creates chaos because they're all contrary to each other, right? Yes. And they're all pulling and, and, and what that creates is, a, is an, a disordered soul. And when you have a society of disordered souls, you have a disordered society that reduces itself to tyranny. Well, there's a band-aid solution uh, to the problem that Lewis presents, which our society so heartedly embraced, which is to make all these conflicting ideals as base, low, and irrelevant as possible. Yes. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, sometimes there's not even that conflict. And when Christians poke their head up and, and dare, right, they, you know, they, they get smashed down. But so not only do we have all this chaos, we have all this abuse basement, yes. which is the exact opposite of what education ought to be for.
Well, this abasement actually isn't uh, and isn't the end of the story either. And and so when we have this abasement, it doesn't just reduce us all down to the terrible McDonald's, you know, modern Big Mac, you know, mm. it, it, in in whatever realm that we're talking about. You know, I'm using that metaphorically, but it it ultimately leads to a kind of tyranny, right? Because everyone now wants they they feel entitled to having these these abased passions satisfied right. right even i mean this i just saw this in a in a in a news uh reel and and this is this is how far it has gone in modern day where um there's a group now and and they've been groups around nambla and such but they are advocating for a new language that we want to call pedophiles maps Okay. Mm. Uh, what do they call minor attracted persons? Okay. So we, we we're going to subjectivize even the language so that we're using this modern language theory to change, um, uh, what it sounds like or, right. or, or what we feel about a particular, you know, thing, because this thing that they're saying is just a norm, you know, in, in terms of the abased nature, um, we can't call that evil. Right. right. He's shaking his head as, as Plato says. And so we're going to change that so that everybody will accept it. And that's, I'm, I'm taking a far out example, yes. but this is where it leads. But even with that example, I mean, I, I don't think that's the first word that would come to mind, but even with that example, the reason, um, individuals get angry and then a group of individuals, a mob gets angry about this is that when you call something evil, there actually is a call to responsibility. Yes. Right. So, you know, so Plato saying that certain desires need to be chastised and mastered. Right. So we, we are telling others, you know, they're not mad at us because we disagree. They're mad at us because we are telling them they have a responsibility to live for others, right. to not only think of gratifying themselves. And that is anathema. That is so anathema. Well, that's, and that's what we were talking about, that this leads to a kind of tyranny because then, you know, it's, it turns into a will to power over whose passions are, are going to be met. Um, I wrote in the margin on that paragraph just before the one you read, mm. you know, but Dylan, you know, you, you've got to serve somebody. Right? Yes. And, and so we either uh, look at education differently um, and, and, and want to have that ennobling kind of education, or we submit ourselves to the tyranny. So people say, well, I don't want the kind of education where I have to, you know, uh, you know, be, uh, measured up to this kind of responsibility or the standard set for me, but you're either going to serve that standard or you're going to serve, you know, the, the, the tyranny, the standard right. of, of the tyrannous, which is why, by the way, you know, when, uh, and this made, more sense years ago when 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 homeschoolers for example were just trying to carve out an existence mm -hmm. uh but really at at this point we shouldn't care that homeschoolers have higher sat scores that's not what it's about right yeah, it's not yeah. it's not about participating in the system right uh it's about an ennobling education yeah. right now uh as a side effect that's a very positive thing but we you know we want to as christian families make sure that we're not educating our children so that they can get good sat right. scores so that they can go to the right kind of state college that will get the right kind of job right christians can have all of those things accomplished if they wish uh, but if that's what you're aiming for 
uh, you will have an impoverished education. You need to be aiming for something greater and nobler. Yeah, that's well, that's exactly right. It it, it is it is a you know benefit. It is a a sort of corroborative benefit of you know and a, and a corroborative argument for the right kind of education. But it's not the aim. And I I would even encourage families to you know parents to to speak more radically around their relatives around their friends you know when they're asked why do you educate this way you know well you know and then you trot out the justifications that the world enjoys yeah right no don't even bother with that sound like a crazy person go for it (laughs) well you uh was it uh, as t.s Eliot, and i think in um uh, christianity and culture in, Mm. in the in the essay that he had written uh where uh about the state, he says, well, you'll either have Christianity, right? You'll, you'll either be this radical and, uh, you know, have a Christian state or you, you need to get, I'm, I'm not going to say it eloquently, but, but you need, or you, you're going to have Hitler, you know, so you, you get to choose. This is, this is what you get to choose. And so to be radical, to, to speak up and say, it isn't about the test score, you know, that's a great right. side benefit, but it is about the ennobled soul and, Yes, they are more aristocratic, and I'm not ashamed of 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 raising children that way, right. you know, having aristocratic souls. And and I th- I, th- I think this is something you and I have talked about before. That um, you know, and, and you had mentioned it earlier, even in the podcast here, about the way we have assimilated into the culture. Mm. And you've used the term before that we should be comfortable for a little while with a ghetto, right? And, you know, and maybe elaborate on that for a second because I think that's such an important part even in our education. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think many listeners will already be familiar with the phenomenon that we're talking about where, um, you know, this, this quest for a noble education in some senses, certainly in, 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 in most circles, is isolating, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, we've also talked in this very episode about, about Christians being diluted, spread out, and easy um, for the, the, the broader culture that hates us to fight us. And so I really think that we're in a, at a point in history where if we focus on nobility and excellence, that's going to push us together and further isolate us. And that's fine. We should embrace that, yeah. uh, not as an ultimate goal, right? Not that huddle and cuddle. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I used it <laughs> in the same episode, uh, but rather that, you know, it's a chance for us to, uh, catch our breath and build up our strength. Uh, and then, you know, once we are strong enough as a community of believers, as a national community of believers, as a national church, then we will have to be reckoned with and we will be projecting the gospel out there. Um, but as it is right now, uh, we are just a bunch of little isolated outposts. Um, and, you know, often our children are indeed, thank the Lord, healthy and strong. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that the Christian community would benefit from cautiously, consciously thinking about, um, you know, circling the wagons. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that um, because I think one of the things that Hicks notes here about the the true advantages of of the kind of education we're talking about he applies to the state Mm -hmm. and and i think what what you just explained um gives us even a a higher nobler pursuit you know Mm -hmm. to and and what he says here at the bottom of page 88 um and i'm going to read a fairly lengthy uh kind of portion he he's talking about the impulse of the democratic 
you know, uh, kind of following up what we talked about before, but the impulse of the democratic state, he says these true advantages of democracy and these advantages that he's talking about um, come from a quote uh, that Thucydides made. He said, democracy does not give people the most skillful government, but it produces what the ablest governments are frequently unable to create, namely an all pervading and restless activity, a superabundant force and an energy which is inseparable from it and which may, however unfavorable circumstances may be, produce wonders. These are the true advantages of democracy. Victor now, Davis Hanson would love that quote. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, what what Hicks says to that in response, he says, these true advantages of democracy father its excesses, infecting the democratic youth with a distracted existence characterized by Plato and contaminating the state with the aggressive, cocksure, reckless political posture described by Thucydides. The aristocratic form of classical education, however, will direct, shape, and hold in check some of its all-pervading and restless activity flow, uh, excuse me, flowing naturally from democracy. It will bind students to their obligations. There's that responsibility we were talking about and hold them responsible for what they know and ask them uh, to weight their actions and aims against those of its ideal type. So you're cultivating, if we think of classical Christian education, you know, in, in doing what he's saying that uh, a classical education will do to the state, mm. I think this is what will happen for a culture, a culture who has, that has been, you know, in, in a sense, it's become anarchist, um, mm. you know, because of all these different passions in the name of freedom uh, that have been unleashed and allowed to happen. It creates this sort of chaotic society that Christians will stand out Christians who are, and, and I'll qualify Christians who have been classically educated. Right. And, and I think that's important because and the distinction I'm making here before I make anybody mad is that there's so many of the Christians who have bought into the public school model and have just adorned it with Bible classes and chapel right. or something, something like that. But a truly classical Christian education will create that kind of culture that will stabilize. And, and that's where the state will look and say, Hey, that's good for us. Right. right. And, you know, we're actually prolonging uh, the moment before that happens, not only by, by failing to produce that, that excellence, um, and that community, but also we're propping up these yeah. institutions, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I spent uh, most of my life in the, in the American South and, you know, you hear there all the time. Well, you know, it's okay. They my kids, government school, all the teachers are Christians, right? We have <laughs> prayer before the football games. All we're doing is keeping the monster alive. Yes. Yeah. You're just feeding it for a little bit longer. Well, here um, in this chapter, I think um, it's a very helpful chapter. And as we've mentioned, it's directed a little differently than, than our aims. But the three things, and I'll just kind of conclude with this, um, but there's, there's three things that, that Hicks really wants us to, uh, to deal with or, or to recognize that classical education, actually, I think there's four, that he wants classical education to uh, or us to recognize that it does. And he says, first, it responds to the conditions and requirements of the whole man in all his domains, the individual, the social, political, and the religious. So the uh, this universal classical education that uh, we should be aiming for is going to address these concerns. It's going to address the whole man in all of society. 
The second thing he says it's going to do is it's going to teach people how to make sound judgments and to discriminate. I know mm-hmm. that's not a very popular word in our, <laughs> in our culture today, but what he's talking about is the ability, you know, in a democratic state, we're all things being equal because, you know, it's freedom to, you know, it, there is nothing that says one thing is better than another in a democratic state. We're the, the Christian who has a classical education is going to model that difference or, 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 project that difference. And then thirdly, classical education in a modern democracy teaches a person to value the aims of government more than its forms. And what he means by this is to recognize that every regime has its failures and strengths, right? Mm-hmm. Weaknesses and strengths. And, and, and so it doesn't really matter if you're in a democracy or a monarchy, um, you know, a classical education will ennoble the people in it. And so a, a classically educated person will be able to recognize the strengths and weaknesses and, and, and set themselves right against those. And so I think he, he does a good job of unpacking those. And I think we can apply them even further um, as this fourth objective says of classical education to correct and in some cases counterbalance the natural excesses and defects of a democracy. And so it perpetuates a dialectic with society. And mm-hmm. that's what a Christian who's not huddling and cuddling or, you know, right. you know, in trying to will to power over against the culture is going to do is enter into a dialectic, right. but we have to be pure in that. Yes. You know, I think it's easy for us to imagine what a monarchy, for example, without the gospel looks like. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it's, we, we have been conditioned to, to think that democracy is, is good in itself. Yeah. And that even if people aren't Christians, this, this pluralism will somehow create justice. Right. And there are, there are a lot of Christians in this country who, who just think that's the case. This system itself works on its own independent of the gospel. It does not, it will be as oppressive or more than any monarchy. And so we have a responsibility as Christians to, among other things, this is not our goal, but it is one of our, it is one of our responsibilities to be good citizens and, and to create good citizens. And those good citizens are going to define themselves by God's will, yes. not the states, not the governments. And if they do that faithfully, then that state will have to reckon with them and Lord willing will be transformed by the gospel. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on. Boom. All right, y'all. Thanks so much. God bless.